So uh, please help me welcome David Troutman. He's a little taller than me. So, uh, so when Jonathan asked me to do this, uh, he said, and I quote from his email, one key criterion for being a speaker for this class will be that of being a really good and engaging presenter. So I thought long and hard about what was the way that I could be the most engaging speaker possible. And uh, I had arranged to have my eight-month-old daughter here with me because I figured if I was holding an eight-month-old cute baby, you guys would pay attention. It'd be really <laughs> But she wasn't feeling well, so she went home. So I don't have her, so the engaging speaker bit's off. So you're just going to have to listen to me and deal with it. So uh, I also uh, recently discovered that the subtitle for today's discussion is also the title of a book, uh, which is Is God a Moral Monster? by this guy, uh, Paul Copan. Um, and so in 222 pages... Copen explores this topic and provides excellent rebuttals to pretty much all of the critiques of the new atheists. So um, his discussion is way more thorough than anything I could produce here, so I wanted to recommend this book to you if you guys are interested in this topic further. It's on Amazon for about $10. Um, so uh, I hope you guys enjoy your drinks, buy the book, read the book, and that should answer all the questions you guys have. So have a good night. The beer is fantastic here. Uh, I'm just kidding. So, um, anyways, um, seriously though, um, this is a great book. The other book um, that addresses this in more detail than I'm going to be able to do tonight um, is a book that recently came out called God Behaving Badly, and it's just coming out in bookstores by David Lamb. Um, so that's another one. If you guys are looking for a more sort of further detailed analysis, I'm going to have to do things sort of in broad strokes tonight. Uh, we only have like 45 minutes, so we're covering a lot of material on the Old Testament. So if you guys are interested further, I'd recommend those two books to you. Um, so uh, the, the last book I wanted to recommend to you guys before, um, before I get started is, uh, you're going to be shocked by this, it's called The Bible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, The Bible is actually the bestseller of all history. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, so, um, I would I would really encourage you if you do have questions about um, yeah that means it even beats out Hunger Games. Can you believe that? Yeah, Hunger Games. Oh, okay, um, so, but this would be rated R. That's right. Yeah, definitely not a kids book. Uh, so, um, but I think that's actually that's one of the issues um, that I'm going to raise tonight with the New Atheist is that I feel like um, as I've read the New Atheist and I've read Dawkins as I've read Dennett that they've actually failed to read the Bible in its entirety. They've sort of uh, read the parts that they wanted to find and, uh, and sort of pulled those out, and they didn't actually read through the Bible in its entirety, which is not uncommon. I taught New Testament at Florida State for about a year and a half, and I was surprised um, when I asked my students how many of them had actually sat down and read through the Bible. Um, I only had one student in a class of 64 students who had read through the Bible in its entirety. And I will also say, I'm, I'm a Christian, I will also say that most of my students were probably Christians that were taking a New Testament class at Florida State, and they still hadn't read through the Bible. So this isn't an indictment against atheists or you know, an, an endorsement of Christians. Um, our culture is vastly biblical, biblically illiterate. So, um, but I would recommend to you, if you have more questions about this, read through the Bible and see what you think about, is God actually a moral monster? 
So tonight I want to talk about what kind of Christians, or I'm sorry, what kind of God do Christians actually believe in? What, who is this God um, that's presented by the Bible? And is he a good God or is he a moral monster? Is this a bad God? So, um, so what about the new atheists? Um, are they even worth responding to on this topic? They've made the accusation that God is a moral monster. I would say no and yes in terms of whether they're worth responding to. Um, no, um, because I don't think they've actually done biblical scholarship in the way that it's done even by secular atheists in the academy. They're not really interested in that. They're more sort of interested, as, as Jonathan talked about last week, in sort of bomb throwing. They're not actually engaging with the best biblical scholarship in the first place. Um, but on the other hand, yes, they are worth responding to, I think, because they have such a sway in our culture. And their arguments are really persuasive. And the stuff that they reference in the Old Testament is real. It's not like they're making this stuff up. The questions that they pose about the Old Testament are right there in the text for all of us to read. So one thing I do want to point out um, as we're sort of thinking about this in terms of we're going to look at the Old Testament and see, is this God that's presented in the Old Testament, is he a moral monster? One of the things that I think the New Atheists do is they sort of look at the Old Testament as if it's a sort of scientific text, as if it has like sort of just scientific things, and then they can just say, well, scientifically, that's not true. We can dismiss it. And the Bible is composed of a wide variety of different kinds of literature that was written over hundreds of years. Okay, this isn't a simple book that you know was published by Joe Schmo. Um, so it spans hundreds of years of history across many different cultures. It's been transmitted for a long time. And there's different kinds of literature. There's poetry. There's narrative. There's, um, you know, there's songs. There's all kinds of different things. There's little short stories in there. There's these weird prophetic books with, you know, animals with horns running around. I mean, there's all kinds of crazy stuff, right? So um, to sort of treat it as a scientific text is a mistake. And I think that's, that's one of the things I'm going to point to. You know, you don't read biblical poetry to ascertain the airspeed velocity of an African swallow carrying a coconut, Right? We wouldn't expect that. Um, and, and you certainly don't read the book of Genesis expecting to find contemporary Western cultural values there. right? You don't pick up a text that's written about you know, 2,600 years ago and say, you know what, I'm going to expect to find some American values here. You know? <laughs> that's, not what, that's not what you should do when you're reading a text that's written in a particular culture at a particular time and place. But they are, um, one thing that they are sort of um, keying in on is that there is... Um, these Western sensibilities that seem to be violated by the Old Testament text and the God that's presented in the Old Testament text. And they're trying to sort of point that out as a way to show, you don't really believe this stuff. This isn't the God you want to follow. This isn't a God that you like. And they've been very successful in some ways. Um, they've even won over members of clergy. This past week, I don't know if you saw it on NPR and CNN, there's a, um, I, I come from, most recently from Tallahassee, Florida State University. There was a, a clergy woman by the name of Teresa McBain. She was a Methodist minister for the past nine years. And um, she recently came out as an atheist. She'd actually been an atheist for like the past three or four years, serving as a Methodist clergywoman and continuing to serve a church. And it eventually sort of ate her up inside, and she was like, I need to come out to my congregation and tell them, I'm an atheist. <laughs> you know, I don't believe any of this stuff I've been teaching you for the past two or three years. And when she was asked sort of like, what, what convinced you? What pulled you away from the faith? What was it? 
she pointed to Richard Dawkins and the New Atheists. She said, that's, that was one of the things that sort of gave me the courage and bravery to face these tough issues and decide to be an atheist. So it's a real issue, um, and it's something that, that connects with Christians. And it's something that um, I can tell you personally, um, my in-laws recently read through the Bible for the first time in their lives. They're both raised in the church, and they never run, read through the entire Bible. And what they kept saying to me is, this Old Testament God, I don't like him very much. <laughs> I don't get it. He doesn't seem like always the nicest guy, and I don't know why he's all in love with this blood all the time. Why is there blood everywhere? Um, so let me um, just sort of, what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to give you, I tried to find a quote from uh, Richard Dawkins that sort of put the new atheist position in one sentence about what they think about the Old Testament God and what's wrong with them. So I'm just going to read a quote. This is um, from page 31 of The God Delusion, which is a very sexy title. Um, so here's a quote from Richard Dawkins. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it? You know this. He's not alone. <laughs> a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, philicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Dang. That's all I can say about that. All right. <laughs> so, so, um, the first thing I want to point out about this quote is he says the God of the Old Testament, right? He doesn't say the God of the Bible. He doesn't say the God of Israel. He doesn't say Jesus. He says the God of the Old Testament. And one of the things that the, the new atheists um, have tried to do is they've tried to sort of drive a wedge. And it's something that um, a lot of Christians do as well. Try to drive a wedge between the Old and New Testament and their presentation of God. And this division of God into the Old Testament God, who does all this weird stuff, and then the New Testament God, who we kind of like, um, is not new. This is not like something that the New Atheists came up with. Um, it's actually an early Christian heresy called Marcionism. There's a guy named Marcionite who said, oh, the Old Testament God, that's the bad God, and Jesus came to save us from that bad God. We like Jesus, we don't like this Old Testament God. Um, so, so I just want to point that out. Um, the main reason why I want to point that out is to say um, the new atheists, it, as, as Jonathan said last week, they're not saying something new, right? Um, they might have some different language to talk about these things, but there's nothing actually new about what they're saying. And in fact, you know, Justin Martyr, um, who's writing in the, you know, the late 200s AD, he was addressing similar concerns um, and writing against these concerns. Um, very early on, you know, about 2,000 years ago, not quite 1,800 years ago. So the, it's not as if these sort of accusations and these struggles are new, and even some of these Christians, like Marcion, who struggled with the Old Testament God. So what I'd like to do is I'm going to use that quote that I read um, with all its different things, and I'm going to sort of group these together and try to address them um, and sort of offer a Christian response um, to the new atheists. So... Uh, the first thing I'd like to respond to is the accusation that God is a self-centered, jealous, prideful, megalomaniacal God. And I'd like to paraphrase this attack as the ad hominem attack, okay? <laughs> so a little bit of irony, hominem means man. But it's, it's an attack against God's character. 
it's a it's a direct assault against who God is, right? Well, the first thing I'd like to respond is that all of creation, um, from a Christian perspective, all of creation is centered around God, okay? And so the new atheist accusation begin with the assumption that God is not, in fact, the best thing for people in all creation to be centered upon, doesn't it? Right? Let me explain. So... Um, so in order for their sort of reduction, reductio ad absurdum to work, right, to say that, look, he says he's jealous, that's absurd, that makes him a bad person, right, they begin with the assumption that God isn't the good, right? He's not the good around which creation should rightfully be organized and should be centered upon, um, which is the very thing their argument is trying to prove, right? So they're trying to prove that God is a moral monster, but... The way that they do that is by stipulating, well, he wants everything to be centered around him. You know, um, he isn't actually the best thing for everything to be centered upon, and so therefore he's bad. Um, so let me let me let me back up and I'll explain a little bit more. So, in other words, they assume their conclusion and their premise to point people to anything besides God would be cruel if God is in fact the best thing, right? So, um, so let me give you an example. If my wife is a doctor, right, and I am a philosopher, and um, and there's somebody who's been wounded here in this room, right? Somebody gets hurt. Is it egotistical of her to insist that the wounded person is brought to her instead of me? Is she being e egotistical and jealous? No, I think we would say, no, she's not, because she's actually the one that can address the problem. Right? And if she were to say, bring the person to me, I'm a doctor, I'm the one who's competent to deal with this problem, we would say, no, she's not being egotistical, she's actually helping the person, and she's doing what's best for that person. So if, God's, if God wants what is best for people, the best thing that he can actually do for them is point them towards himself. So in the very act of pointing to, towards himself, to say that that's a bad thing and that's a selfish act or that's egotistical or whatever um, is actually sort of in your mind stipulating that he isn't actually the best thing. You actually have to assent to that proposition that he isn't the best thing for all of creation to be ordered around. So um, my second point. So responding to the accusation that God is self-centered, jealous, prideful, megalomaniac. The God, when we read the Bible in its entirety, we actually find a sacrificial, self-giving, humble God. So when we read the Old Testament, um, I think there's certain parts that you could read that way. When we read the Old Testament in its entirety, the overarching narrative is about a God who patiently endures the rejection and rebellion of the very people he is continually provided for and cared for. So if you read the book of Exodus or Deuteronomy, which sort of retells the story of Exodus... You hear about a people who are tangibly in the presence of God. Literally, God is hovering above their heads as they wander around. And they still rebel against him. Right? So, this sort of turning against God is the main theme of the Old Testament. Is that God is right there present with them, and they're turning against him. So what does God do? Does he strike them all dead in the desert and say, I'm going to start over with the new people? No. No, he patiently sort of endures their rebellion. Or you could read any of the prophetic books. I mean, read the whole Old Testament. 
You read Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea. The whole story is about a people who reject God and a God that does not forsake them. Um, so let me ask a quick quick uh, Bible question since I, I uh, drove home that there's bad biblical literacy in the United States. <laughs> um, who here knows the story of the prodigal son? What, what, um, is that in the New Testament or the Old Testament? You sure about that? So if we turn to Hosea 11, just tell me what this sounds like. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more I called them, the more they went from me. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and offering incense to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with bands of love. I was to them like those who lift infants to their cheeks. I bent down to them and fed them. They shall return to the land of Egypt, and Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword rages in their cities, it consumes their oracle priests, and devours because of their schemes. My people are bent on turning away from me, to the most high they call, but he does not raise them up at all. And then here's the part I want you to hear. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zebuin? These are kind of weird countries. Um, my heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and no mortal, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Jesus isn't making up a new story when he's talking about the prodigal son. He's retelling the story that's been told throughout the entire Old Testament. So the story of the prodigal son, right, is about a son who says to his father, I want my inheritance. He goes off and he leaves his father. He basically says to his dad, I wish you were dead. Goes off and spends all the money. And then when he comes back, he's, he, he finally realizes he's like, I'm here living in poverty because I've wasted all this money. I'll go back to my father and I'll be one of his servants. Maybe he'll, you know, let me at least serve him and, and live in his house and I can have food to eat. And he goes back and instead the father comes and runs and greets him. Um, puts a ring on his finger and does, throws this huge party over him. And Jesus is telling a story, but it's not a new story. The reason why it resonated with the people that Jesus was talking to is because this was the whole story of Israel. That time and again they'd run away from their God. They'd turn against him. They've sort of squandered what he'd given them. Rebelled against him and he still had compassion he still sacrificed for their behalf. He humbled himself and said, you know what? Yeah, you totally wronged me, but I love you anyways. So, so it's interesting to hear them level that um, accusation, especially since this narrative is continued and fulfilled in the God-man Jesus, right? So this is another thing I want to point to as a mistake that the new atheists often make is um, that sort of wedge I was talking about between the Old Testament and the New Testament one of the sort of foundational truths for the Christian is that Jesus is God, right? And so it's difficult to see how Jesus could be self-centered, jealous, prideful, megalomaniac when he gets crucified. That's a problem. <laughs> I know if I was a really self-centered person, I probably wouldn't put my life on the line to die for someone else, right? If I was really mostly concerned with myself, would I really let myself be killed? No. Um, I think not. So, and, and what Jesus says about himself is he said, the Son of Man does not come to, um, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
And this is exactly what we see Jesus doing with his whole life and his ministry. And so I think in a sense, um, we have to see that there is this continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And Jesus is fulfilling this story of Israel in his own life. This story of Israel rebelling against God and still um, being, being favorable. Jesus is doing that with his disciples as they rebel against him and even forsake him completely. He still calls them back together and loves them. The last sort of um, image I want to point to that sort of debunks this accusation that God is self-centered, jealous, prideful, megalomaniac is that throughout the Old Testament, um, God describes himself as a loving husband um, who's jealous for his wife. I'm married. I've been married for five years now. And, um, you know, when we, when we think about jealousy, it sort of sounds bad, doesn't it? Like when you hear about a jealous boyfriend who doesn't want his girlfriend, like, talking to another guy. Actually, maybe somebody like this. But anyways, talking to another guy or doing anything with any other guy or being in their presence or anything. He's really jealous. It sounds bad, right? We have this sort of negative connotation of jealousy. But if I said to you, you know, I really am not comfortable with the idea of my wife being in bed with another man. Would that sound unreasonable to you? If I told you, I would be very angry if I came home and found my wife in bed with another man. And I'd also be very sad. Does that sound unreasonable to you? No. No, it doesn't sound unreasonable. And the, and the reason it doesn't is because we understand that in a loving relationship, there's boundaries. Um, and so this is actually closer, and this is exactly what the Old Testament means when it says that, um, so for example, um, in, um, in Exodus, for example, 25 and 34, 14, when, Jesus, when, I'm sorry, when God says, I am a jealous God. He says it that boldly. I am a jealous God. Um, when he says that, um, the New Atheists point to that and say, look, he's admitting that he's a jealous God. Do you like jealousy? Is this the kind of God you want as a jealous God? But when you think about that in terms of a marriage, and we think about God as a husband who's married to his people, we would say, well, no. He should be jealous for his people. He should want them to honor their agreement that they made with him, that they're going to love him and him only just like um, we do in marriage. And so God entered into this covenant, and this is in Exodus 19 if you want to look it up. I'm encouraging you to read your Bibles. Um, and this covenant is like a marriage. It's an agreement between two parties, right, between God and his people that says, we're married now. We're, we're betrothed to each other. And you can't have other gods because you're in this relationship with me. And what do the Israelites do throughout the Old Testament? They continually break that marriage covenant when they practice idolatry and they worship other gods. The book of Ezekiel, the book of Hosea, that's the whole theme of those books. This is why I say I'm a little skeptical of what parts of the Bible the New Atheists have read because there's entire books of the Bible that they don't, they seem to sort of skim over <laughs> in, uh, in trying to paint this negative picture of God. So um, I already mentioned this, but I want to come back to it, which is um, God is Jesus and Jesus is God for the Christian. So, I just, I have not come across, um, it, you know, I was at a secular university where I taught New Testament for about a year and a half at Florida State. I was in the philosophy department there, um, where at one point I was, I think, one of the only Christian students. And I never heard anyone claim these types of things about Jesus. I never heard them claim that he was sort of this egotistical, jealous, self-centered individual. And so... Um, 
if Jesus really is the image of God, if he's the exact imprint of God's very being, which is what Hebrews says, um, then, you know, this doesn't make a lot of sense to level that accusation against the Christian God. Unless they're trying to point to a discrepancy between the Old Testament God and the New Testament God. But when you look at Jesus' life in terms of, you know, uh, being harsh with people, um, talking about hell, you want to look up in a concordance, you know, who talks about hell the most? It's Jesus. But we don't hear people leveling these same accusations against him. And, and actually what you find is when you look at Jesus in the New Testament and you look at the God of the Old Testament, there's great continuity between them. So if we want to know who God is and we want to know what he looks like, um, we need to look to Jesus would be the Christian response. So I'm going to move to the next one just uh, for the sake of time. So responding to the accusation that God is a racist, genocidal, pestilential, ethnic cleanser. That's one of my favorite. These are great words, aren't they? You're here. It's good with language. So um, I just want to read you part of Deuteronomy. And this is, um, this is exactly what um, the new atheists are referring to when they talk about um, God in this way. So this is Deuteronomy 20, um, 16 through 18. So tell me what you guys think about this. This is about... Um, the Israelites are about to go into the promised land, which is where, generally where present-day Israel is. They're coming um, out of Egypt. And so this is, this is what God says to them in 2016-18. But as for the towns of these people that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, you must not let anything that breathes remain alive. You shall annihilate them. The Hittites and the Amorites Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, just as the Lord your God has commanded, so that they may not teach you to do all the abhorrent things that they do for their gods, and you thus sin against the Lord your God. This sounds pretty bad, right? Does it sound bad to you? Just a teeny bit, yeah. It sounds a little bit like the Holocaust, maybe. Maybe it sounds like Pol Pot or Stalin's pogroms. Maybe, about, maybe it sounds like the genocide in Rwanda, where there was complete annihilation, almost complete annihilation of the Tutsis by the Hutus. Well, let me, let me back up, and let's talk about genocide. What do you guys think is the primary motivation for genocide? Religion. You think religion? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, Stalin was motivated by religion? Okay. <laughs> All right, cool. Well, um... Well, what about, what about the Hutus and Tutsis? There's no religious difference there. Hate. Hate. Colonialism, um, the after effects of colonialism. Okay, so, but why, I mean, why did they do it? Struggle for limited resources. Yeah. Resources. Yeah. Spanish Inquisition. So. Pride and greed. Greed. Now we're getting somewhere. If, if we actually look back at history and all of the genocides that have taken place, if you look at what was motivated, so for example, what did Hitler talk about when he was trying to stir up the populace against the Jews? I'm half Jewish, actually. I had relatives who died in the Holocaust. What, why, why was he saying that they should round up all the Jews, segregate them off from society? What was the reason? The Benjamins. It was money. 
Jews were bankers, right? There was a, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, what, what, why superiority? Like, what, what was what was grounding that? Yeah. So I think so. In the case of the Nazis, what what Hitler's whole political platform said was basically, "We are in shambles economically. Look at the Jewish population. They seem to be doing pretty well." Why is that? It's because they're stealing our money. You have to pay interest to them, and they're the only ones who are allowed to charge interest. If you look at the Hutus and the Tutsis, for example, the Tutsis, as you said, the colonialists, had set them up as the ruling class, gave them most of the land, gave them most of the property, gave them most of the power and the money. The Hutus rose up against that because they saw them as a colonial power who had lorded it over them. They had the money, right? So, in a sense, when we look back at one of the primary motivations, and I don't know if this is motivation for all of them, but Stalin's program, certainly, I mean, what's the first thing they do when they're rounding up these people was seize their property and take the money, right? One of the primary motivations are money and sort of consolidating power. What's interesting about the passage I just read is that that motivation is completely erased. They're told to kill every living thing, every animal, Everything has to be burned. They can't take any money. They can't take anything. They can't enslave the people and make them work. They can't do anything. The only thing they get is land, right? They drive the people out. They just get land. They don't get any money. They have to destroy everything completely. And I just mentioned that because this isn't the way that human beings naturally work, right? When we are taking over something, right? We're like, let's enslave the people, like what happened in Sudan. Let's enslave the people, let's take the money, let's use it to finance our continuing operation, consolidate our power, and amass our wealth. But what's interesting about this is, in God's command, it's get rid of everything. Get rid of every human motivation you would have for possessing this land. You're not going to benefit from it in any way, other than, of course, getting the land. But that's not a very good response because they're still getting the land, right? So let's let's delve a little deeper. One thing I'd say, and by the way, I don't think we can answer this completely satisfactorily, but I'm going to give you my shot at it. So um, everything belongs to God from the Christian perspective, right? But one thing that especially belongs to God is human life. So these people who are being killed by the Israelites, and by the way, this is an actually a very small amount of people. Um, with other genocides. Um, these people belong to God before anyone else, right? These are God's creation, right? They're made in the image of God. So one of the assumptions um, that I think the new atheists make about this is that death is the absolute worst thing that can happen to a person, right? Is that fair? Like, it's horrible that they're exterminating these people. But that assumes something in terms of the framework of these, of, of it assumes something about what is actually happening, that death is the end. But for the Christian, we would say, well, death isn't the end. As Jesus said, what, is it, what does it gain a man to save his life but forfeit his soul? And God, one of the things that we talked about in the last section was God is concerned with stamping out idolatry and putting an end to all idolatry, right? Because his people are being tempted to go and, um, go and worship other idols and worship gods that aren't true and do damage to their souls. So, in a way, there is a sense in which the extermination of these people, that doesn't mean that they're condemned for all eternity or anything like that. 
right? Not necessarily. They're killed. Um, they're inhabiting God. They're inhabiting the land that God has set aside for His people. But the other thing I want to say about these people is, if you learn about the Canaanites and the Jebusites and the Hivites and the Perizzites, if you study what their sort of culture was, these are cultures of death. I remember I was in Mexico City one time, and um, you know, colonialism is terrible, especially in the things that were done in Mexico by um, the Spanish conquistadors. One of the things that I was struck by is there's this uh, great mural in Mexico City on the Capitol building, and um, there's um, a picture of the Aztecs, and they have all this beautiful architecture that they've set up. And they, you see all this culture and this beauty and all these different things that they were doing. And then as you move through it and you're looking at it, and then you see what the Aztecs were doing with people. And you see them hauling children up to the top of their temples and pushing their heads over cactuses and slitting their throats, right? Impaling them on cactus, cacti, I guess. Um, so um, when we think about these cultures, I think in a sense there's a Western myth that all cultures are sort of equal. That every culture has its, you know, has, has good, is good in itself. But some cultures are cultures of death where there's child sacrifice going on. And we know that, for example, in Canaan, this was a widespread practice. And sometimes the Israelites even participated in it, that they would throw their children into fires, right, and burn them alive. So these cultures, in some sense, we can sort of like be like, oh, these poor innocent people are inhabiting this land. But these were people who were known for, for example, um, beheading, uh, this is, there's an inscription that talks about this, beheading, um, the, whoever they would capture, and then taking those heads and marching out into battle with them on the front of their standards and running towards the opposing army with this, with this like massive wall of heads to frighten them, right? So these aren't, uh, these aren't kind and gentle people. Um, the other thing to note is that the Bible doesn't actually say that everybody was exterminated. So for example, we have a story in Joshua 2 about Rahab, who's a prostitute, who actually recognizes the God of the Hebrews as, as God and as the rightful Lord, and she's spared. And not only is she spared, but all of her family is spared as well. So one thing is, is to read this account when God says to exterminate them all, there seems to be an exception clause, except those who are going to recognize who I actually am. If they're willing to recognize me, then they will be spared. So those who acknowledge the God of the Hebrews are spared. And then I want to just point to three things that are actually sort of positives about this. One thing is um, there's no slavery and subjugation of people, right? They're not allowed to take slaves. They're not allowed to subjugate them in any way. Um, and they're not um, allowed to sort of put them, lord themselves over the people in that way. The other thing is for the foreigners who do remain, who are willing to recognize the God of the Hebrews – they actually are granted equal protection under the law. Anybody can join the people of God, and that's in Leviticus 24, 22. They're granted just the same protections as the Israelites. And then the last thing I want to say, and I know this isn't a totally satisfactory answer, um, but, um, but one thing I want to say is the vision all along that God presents is all nations being blessed through the Israelites. You might say, well, it's not really much of a blessing if you're slaughtering an entire populace, right? Um, but as I said before, there's a choice that's made, right? There's a choice as to whether they want to come and submit to the God of the Hebrews or not. 
And there's a vision cast for sort of establishing a new nation that will then draw all nations to God and will be sort of an image of God, a planting of the Lord that will reflect who God is and draw all people to that one God. And it's hard to imagine, for me at least, how else God could do it. This is a ragtag group of ex-slaves that are wandering around in the desert, right? How are you going to establish that culture and that people and their religion of the true God and spread it throughout the earth if they have no home? It's hard for me to imagine what God would have done. So um, we'll return to that actually um, at the end of this. Um, and then I want to respond to the accusation um, that God is bloodthirsty, this is my favorite, philicidal, and infanticidal. And what is with all those sacrifices? <laughs> so, um, so I don't have time tonight or the complete expertise to explain sort of every aspect of the sacrificial system. So I want to look at the most difficult and challenging sacrifice in the Old Testament. Any guesses what that is? About killing a human. Yeah, Isaac. <laughs> so the binding of Isaac. Um, this is a story about when God tells Abraham to kill his son, his um, last remaining son. And this is a struggle. Um, my mom really hates this passage. She really doesn't understand it. She struggled with it. Um, there's a couple things I just want to point out to it, a way that Christians have always historically understood this. One is that, and the story makes this very clear in Genesis 22, Isaac is a miraculous provision, right? Um, Abraham is like 100 years old or something. Sarah's like 80-something. And they're able to conceive a child and have a child. Now, I like to think my child is a gift of God, right? <laughs> but there was nothing totally miraculous. I mean, in some sense it was miraculous, but there was nothing, something absolutely miraculous about the birth of my daughter, right? But in the case of Isaac, this is actually a really radical, miraculous provision where even Sarah was like, what the heck? I'm going to get pregnant. This is so weird. And so this child is really God's child, right? He made it possible. He made the impossible possible. The second thing I want to note is that in doing this, I can't think of a better way to sort of imprint on the sort of memory of Abraham and the people of Israel, this memory of the cost of following God, of being devoted to Yahweh. I can't think of a way that would make that more real than having to kill this son, your only remaining son because your other son's been driven out, your last son to have to kill him. And... I think God is actually aware of this. If you look at the passage, when we look at Genesis 22, the way that God approaches Abraham is really interesting. And tell me what you, what you know about this. But he says, he says, take your son, your only son. If there's any question, which son? Isaac. Oh yeah, the one whom you love. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall show you. Now, the interesting thing about that is it seems like God is aware of sort of the psychological costs of a lifetime of not being able to have children and desperately wanting to. I have a, there's a couple that we're good friends with that have had three miscarriages now. And they so desperately want a child. And... Um, they long for the day when they get to have their own child. And 
I think there's something in that that could quickly turn into giving thanks to the gift rather than the giver of the gift. And I think one thing that God is doing here is he's explaining, look, this is mine. This child that you have is mine. Mine to do with as I please, with whatever I want to do with it. And the other reality is, is that God has already promised to Abraham that he's going to be the father of a whole multitude of nations. So the way that the New Testament deals um, with this and the way that it actually lends some light on the story, and this is what Christians say, and I was surprised that you know, Dawkins never actually mentions this. Um, I guess I shouldn't be too surprised. Um, in Hebrews 11, it says that the reason why Abraham was willing to do this, to go make this sacrifice, is that he believed in the resurrection of the dead. He believed that if he killed Isaac, God's promise was so sure that Isaac would be resurrected from the dead. And so... Um, so what I'm saying there is that part of God's purpose is establishing Abraham as this faithfully obedient servant of God that will do something as drastic as kill his own son. And we look at that and say that's horrible. But the reality is God is the God of the universe and all lives belong to him, including this life that's been miraculously provided. And if Abraham really trusted God and said God's going to do what's best, even if I kill my son... He's going to make the best out of that, and he's going to fulfill his promise. Well, that's what obedience looks like. And the last thing I want to say is, you know, at the end of the day, Abraham doesn't have to kill Isaac. Right? God actually stops him and doesn't let him kill Isaac. But at the end of the day, he doesn't spare himself. Right? When Jesus is crucified on the cross... He doesn't spare himself. He doesn't spare his own son. I'm getting text messages. <laughs> um, then the last thing I want to respond to is the accusation that God endorses slavery. So, um, especially in America, I grew up in the South. This, um, this is probably one of the saddest um, parts of Christian history, is that it was Christians who were doing this enslaving of Africans and bringing them over to America to live as slaves, breeding them as if they were cattle and enslaving their children. Well, this is actually just a simple linguistic problem. The word that gets translated often as slavery or slave in the Old Testament doesn't actually really mean slave like we mean it in North America. So slavery in the Old Testament was probably a little bit more akin to um, being a hired hand, or being an au pair, or a butler, for example, where you live in someone's house. It's not like slavery in the Americas. It was based on debt, and so in other words, it's choice. Um, it wasn't for life, and you didn't pass it on to your descendants. So if you were a slave, any children you had, they would be, free, be born free. They weren't slaves. Um, the other thing to note is that it was limited in duration. So you were allowed to be a slave for six years, and then you were set free. You would be made a slave by debt, but then after that you'd be set free. Sorry. I just want to see how we're doing on time. Do you time out there? Okay, we're running low. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speed up. So slavery 
as it's described in the Old Testament, is not actually slavery as we conceive of it today. Um, in fact, there was even a specific ritual prescribed for when a slave so enjoys being a slave that he or she freely chooses to remain one. So, did you guys know that? Yeah, there's actually a ritual in the Old Testament for when a slave says, I really dig this job. I'd like to stay a slave for the rest of my life. Could I do that? That sounds awesome. That's a little difficult to imagine in, uh, you know, in the 1700s in the South. You couldn't imagine a lot of slaves being like, you know what, I love this. This is awesome. Rather than go back to my country and my people, I'd love to stay here and continue to work in your fields. No, we, do, we don't really imagine that. So the other thing um, to note is that slavery is condemned in the New Testament. Um, if you read Galatians 3.28, there is neither slave nor free for those who are in Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 1.10 says, condemn slave traders, says that it's wrong. And the whole, there's an entire book in the New Testament by Lehman, which is basically a condemnation of slavery um, among Christians. There's one caveat, though. Christians are the ones that are called to be the slaves. We can't be slave traders, but we are called to be the slaves of all and slaves of Christ. So I've gone through sort of some of the reasons why I don't think they're critiques. And I, don't, I didn't cover all their critiques. I just covered some of the ones that um, are the most prominent, I think are the most forceful. Um, but I want to talk, I want to sort of step back real quick in conclusion and talk about some of the sort of philosophical underpinnings of the arguments that the new atheists are making. Um, there's an Anglican theologian named um, Joseph Butler, and he talks about ignorance as a strength for the Christian. And what he says is that, you know, um, we don't understand the natural world completely, do we? Um, do you guys know what the single unified theory of physics is? Yeah, okay, cool. So, do you know what it is? What is it? Well, that, that's the thing. Which one, right? <laughs> a single unified which one? Yeah. So, um, no. So, so the single unified theory, this is like the end game for all of science. It's this one theory to explain all these different um, formulas that don't make sense altogether. And it's a way to bring them all together. So, to bring in Einstein's relativity, to bring in... Um, quantum mechanics, to bring them all together and explain all the unexplained stuff. One theory that explains it all. Why is it that as particles get smaller, they don't actually follow the, follow the laws that exist to govern larger bodies, for example, planets and stars or galaxies? So um, the single unified theory is sort of the goal of all this science. Now, we would be foolish and we would be counted fools if we said, well, since they haven't hit upon a single unified theory of all of physics, let's just forget science. Throw it out. Doesn't work. Right? We would say, no. <laughs> like, keep trying. <laughs> you know, there's, there's going to be an answer. Keep pushing. So if we can't even understand the natural world, and we don't have a single unified theory that sort of explains everything, in the natural world. It's a bit odd that we would expect to have a single unified theory that would explain everything in the moral world, right? So the way this works is, it's a way to respond to this critique like, 
well, you know, your moral systems don't explain everything. They don't explain, we don't understand why God would do this. Why does he act in this way? And what we would say is, that's because we're human. You don't have a single unified theory of physics that explains everything. I don't have a single theory of God that explains every way that he behaves. What gives? So, um, so what has happened, um, according to Butler, and this, he's writing you know, 200 years ago, um, is that the truth of human ignorance is ignored whenever someone is arguing against the truth of Christianity. Um, but yet, um, but this, our ignorance and the consequence drawn from it are universally acknowledged upon other occasions. And though, as he says, are scarce denied, yet are universally forgot when persons come to argue against religion. So the fact of human ignorance cannot be used as a basis for dismissing God's system of morally governing the world. Um, any more than human ignorance of a single unified theory of physics can be used to dismiss all the claims of science. So we wouldn't want to point to a specific instance in the Old Testament or whatever and say, you know what? Looks like God's acting immorally there. Let's toss him out. For the same reason, we wouldn't want to look at science and say, well, you have all these different formulas that don't actually line up with each other and actually contradict each other, so we should just throw you out completely. Um, and I want to just conclude with this. Um, the last thing that's sort of in terms of philosophy that underpins this is that the morality um, is just sort of a, they appeal to sort of a general Western morality. What's interesting about that is the general morality that they're appealing to in order to label God as immoral is actually a God-given morality. <laughs> the morality that's pervasive in Western culture is derived from a Judeo-Christian worldview. So to say, for example, that pride is bad, that's straight out of Scripture. They got that from the Bible, right? So, and, and that's part of the force of their argument is they're trying to turn Scripture against Scripture. But at the end of the day, it says, well, if you don't believe that, then where is the foundation for the morality? And I think Josh is going to talk about this next week. Where is the foundation for your morality if you jettison God? From which that vantage point, what vantage point are you going to stand in order to critique God with a moral system? If you've just thrown out all the moral systems. So I close with that just to say, um, I, think, um, I think one of the issues is sort of an, an unwillingness to see how the culture is a direct descendant. The Western culture that they're appealing to is a direct descendant of Scripture and of the God of the Old and New Testament. So I'm going to conclude there, and I'm ready to answer questions.